Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, TV and music of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers. I'm a historian of France and a general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been debating and consuming culture together ever since we were at university, which now feels so long ago that blind date was the big thing in dating. Yeah, I think I was uh, trying for Scylla's Buffon at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Luckily, I have it naturally without having to try. This week, we're talking about Love Island, the seventh season. Love Island should have been something I loved from the start as a, as a scholar of all things intimacy. Um, but in fact, I hated it and I couldn't understand why anybody watched such vulgar trash with such idiotic people just boringly drinking water um, and wine, you know, in a villa in Mallorca or whatever. But one year I kind of really settled down and made myself pay attention to it. And I got obsessed and that was about three seasons ago. And since then, it's a total must see for me. For me, Love Island is the most fascinating read of gender relations in the society that I can possibly access because it's, it, it, it shows us people who aren't middle class. You know, it, it really is, it is how another, I wouldn't say how the other half live, but it's definitely how something else, some other strata of society lives. And may I add a much richer, more solvent strata than the one I'm in. But the main thing that I um, think is fascinating about Love Island is that it year after year it appears to be a spectacle of kind of gladiatorial gender warfare. So that is something that I enjoy analyzing and that we will hopefully come back to. A couple of stats just to add to Zoe's preface there. This is the seventh season of the show and it's the first season to come back after an 18-month hiatus, uh, partly due to the pandemic. Um, Interesting that twice as many people applied for Love Island uh, as for Oxford and Cambridge this year, so over 100,000 people put themselves forward for this game show and apparently it's quite hard to get contestants who are willing to go on any other game shows when they're all so desperate to go on Love Island. It's a series that now has sort of sister franchises in the US, Australia, Nigeria. Um, Is it hyped? I mean, it's a good question. I was reviewing uh, some of the comments about this season. Um, There's a lovely piece in The Telegraph describing it as stomach-churningly fascinating. Uh, And Lucy Mangan at The Guardian's described, I hate myself, but I can't stop. Um, And maybe that's also the position now that Zoe is coming from as well. Um, Zoe, can I pick up on on what you said there about the kind of gladiatorial combat? Um, I mean, I haven't seen as much Love Island as you, but I'm struck this season in particular, that there really does seem quite a lot of neurosis perhaps going on. Um, And there's a kind of very evident disinterest in the opposite sex, which is is visible, I think, from the very first episode. I just wonder what your thoughts are about the relationships between men and women that we can see this series. Well, I mean, (laughs) so it's a funny one because Love Island expects the contestants to be either be friends or show friendliness. Faye, one of the contestants, um, even referred to them, actually competitors, other women who just come in who are mega hot as part of the team. So Love Island operates on two 
competing axes. One is the one of friendship where the, you know, sometimes you even get friend couples. So the women are supposed to be friends among themselves. The men are supposed to be friends among themselves. And then sometimes the men and the women are also supposed to be friends. And all of that can actually help them strategically in the end. But obviously overlaid on top of that, they're expected to sort of generate um, chemistry and romance. And, you know, I've, I always think that really what you see is the way that women don't trust men. They're always looking for men to kind of screw them over. They're super you know, sensitive to all the kind of tricks men may play. And that's very much the image of, of men. It's kind of dirty dogs. And the men are kind of willing to eat shit and, you know, be humble pie or whatever, but then they do sort of enjoy being dirty dogs as well. So there's a sense of brinkmanship, that there's a game afoot that the men are always going to kind of screw the women in the end, even though they kind of, they seem to be subservient at the beginning. And that is indeed what happens. And so there's this really, you know, interesting sort of, there's the friendship, there's the romance, but then there's this sort of simmering gender warfare under it. This season's very interesting because the men are awful, but they're gorgeous. The women (laughs) are actually, some of them have characters, but they're just not good. They're hideous, some of them. I mean, part of the problem is that they've just had way too much work done, but we, we need to get to that separately because of this whole fake gate issue where, you know, one of them accidentally said he didn't like fake women and there was like World War Five, um, and I'm counting the other world wars as having taken place on Love Island. Um, so, yeah, so I think, I think this year is fascinating because the problem is there isn't really the chemistry because the women aren't hot enough for the men. It is so blatant. And I, and, you know, I'm always interested in this starkness of this hierarchy when you strip away everything else, which these people have through their lifestyles, you know, character doesn't count. Intelligence doesn't count. Charm doesn't exist. You know, subtlety is dead. It leaves you with a hot bod and these women have a hot bod ish, but their face, you know, they, they've got a lot of work done. They're not beauties. They've tried to make themselves hot and it hasn't really worked in the context of love island so that is producing some really interesting dynamics um what have you made of the of the season so far tom well i I like what you suggest about the brutish simplicity of love island is kind of you know it's the game of love with all of its kind of illusions stripped away it does feel like it's quite a sort of crude kind of minimal level of what human interaction might be and i and i like the kind of predatory nature of it i have to say like it really brings out what's strategic that there is desperation underpinning this and i suppose it's interesting to think about contestants who in their lives are probably the hot one in their friendship group or are the ones who've always been the objects of desire now being forced to compete and compare themselves to people who are much more attractive than them in some cases. And I've just been struck that actually there's much more interest in how they rank compared to other people of their sex than there is in what's going on with the opposite sex in this series. Like the girls are really interested in each new arrival coming in, not just as someone who might take the man, but also as someone who throws into relief what they're doing with their bikini, you know, or what they're doing with their hair. And I feel a lot of the rituals about getting ready, are really not about the gaze of the opposite sex, but all about the kind of scrutiny of the friends. I mean, one thing that strikes me in this series is like the length of time of the makeup. I mean, maybe that's what always happens. That's but always you see the girls fact, preparing to go oh, to bed. No. Sorry, Tom. This is now you're revealing the fact that you haven't been a kind of committed watcher. That it's actually a bit it, they, okay. Less maybe in this season than usual. I'm it's maybe because the girls are not as attractive. I'm struck by the kind of emphasis on the cosmetics because you see the transformation between like the vision when they appear in the sun and then the way that they go to bed and wake up in the morning. But there's all of the like getting ready. And I know that that's always kind of part of it, but this weird kind of performance and theatricality and it's all of the girls 
or looking at each other get ready in the same way the guys looking at each other get ready even when it just means getting ready to go to bed there's a, there's a very strange kind of performance going on. Well, I actually have a different reading of that. I think that the the, the sort of getting ready stuff is a moment of conviviality among the women, a bit like women's uh, ladies' toilets. To me, that's a moment when they're sort of showing themselves that they're most natural in a way because you see the the hand behind the puppet strings or whatever you see the 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 foundation be scrubbed on and scrubbed off there's a sort of low-key friendliness I think to that makeup stuff I think they hide behind all that that preparation-y stuff is their comfort zone because that's the thing they've devoted themselves to so I think there's something almost kind of collegiate to me it's more collegiate and competitive the the makeup stuff and it's often where they kind of have frank chats and where they relax what I think is interesting is that the men increasingly are also um, doing similar grooming as the women and this is part of something I've Mm. really been interested in more generally over the last few years but just the way that kind of it's not that women are taking the focus off beauty or the grooming standards are in any way going down for women it's that men are are now having to correspond to the same levels of of hairlessness you know perfection you, you yep. see brad one of the contestants face masks. yes you see the men putting on face masks and eye cream under eye cream so so i think that's super interesting again from a kind of gender grooming perspective but but um but you're right, obviously, Tom, to to kind of point out the, the way the women see the other women. And, and it's sort of like they don't even like the men, but yet they do feel quite territorial. And I think Love Island is quite interesting in the way they 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 stage these things in increments and, and novelty is a very interesting aphrodisiac. So in a way, the women that start soon lose their luster, almost regardless yeah. of who comes in. Um, because they've been there since the start. So in this episode season, that's really interesting because the, the first woman to come in was Chloe, who's weirdly ugly, but is a leggy blonde. So she's confusing. Again, she's a confusing because they want, you know, they she's new. So that makes them all crowd around her, but she's not beautiful. So that is a distancing thing. So that's why they respond. They're enthusiastic, but not that enthusiastic. None of them really fall over head over heels. And then she kind of is able to join the, the girl gang. Then you get Rachel, who is, looks great with makeup on looks rough the black without shell. yeah without, exactly the contrast that's yeah. what i was thinking about the makeup was really with rachel where i was kind of shocked at the the difference between the attitude yeah. when she's done up yeah. and the kind of vulnerability when yes. without that kind yes. of that that hair and that armor yeah oh yeah the the are i mean but what's so interesting obviously is what's going on when they're showing them quite brazenly without their makeup i mean this season's the first time i've seen them wake up and immediately put on their sunglasses in the morning but generally they're very oh the women are just like you know you see a completely different person like and it's interesting that they're happy to be seen like that but 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 now and then what's interesting is you know obviously it's going to go on and hopefully people will listen to this when more things have happened but you just you know they've now introduced these two genuinely beautiful women and the game has changed completely and you see actual lust from the men, actual interest, which has just not been there this whole time. And I think for me, the biggest thing to take from this is that it's increasingly hard for young men and women in their 20s who live this kind of influencer, gym-obsessed lifestyle to actually generate feeling mm. or romance. They don't know how to make a spark. They can't make conversation. They have no charm. They the, All they're good at is, making, is working on their bodies. And so that turns out not to be as good for generating um spark as being nice conversation yeah conversation can really help obviously we see in love island that it doesn't win the day i mean chloe's popular because she's she is nice to talk to but you see you know in the end when these bombshells come in actual bombshells as faye put it they are like a shell of bomb and once again we're back to that sense that actually in the end it doesn't matter what women are like 
as long as they're, you know, if they're stunning enough, it, none of that matters. The, the, the men and the women are almost victims of their own criteria. Like that, you know, it's interesting when they talk about what do they want in the opposite sex and like, you know, hair color is really important. The guys, you know, they yes. classify like blonde brunette. And yeah. like that, that's a, a tan is really important. Teeth is really yes. important for the women. And the problem is, is that you just get variations of these kind of key criteria and they all pretend and say, oh, actually it's about personality as well. Mm. But you scratch me at the surface and even Kaz, she's really critical of Toby at the beginning, who is an oversized child, don't get me wrong, because he's not as fit as the others. Now, by any objective standards, Toby has all the muscles in a way that you would imagine of somebody who's, you know, he's got a pretty athletic build, but because he doesn't have the guns in the way that Jake does or in the way that Brad does, she's embarrassed about his physique. And so there is this way that they pretend that they're looking for this kind of best mate, as they like to say, or this kind of soul connection, but they can't see past the physical goods. And no matter how comfortable they feel with somebody, there's this kind of lingering sense of, I could trade them in for the next one up. Like I could get another version of this very well, easily in a slightly more refined bottle. And Jake and Jake and Liberty are a good example of this. And that there they are supposedly the kind of most successful couple so far on the show. But he's very open about the fact that he could imagine another small blonde with feet that he could suck yeah. that, that would quite yeah. quickly kick her out of bed. So, you know, because, because these personalities are reduced to their kind of bare, criteria like a taxonomy of bits and pieces they can easily be traded in for slightly better versions of those bits and pieces anytime someone comes through the door yes but i have to say i think you've slightly um muddled together the genders so i think gender is really important here the key thing is that kaz yeah by the way toby is an actual footballer so his body yeah he's pretty fit yeah she said she kept saying that thing about the gym but then she genuinely put it aside and fell for him whereas the men are completely unable to fall for women based on personality the women can be one round they say they want the tan they say they want the the teeth but we saw in the season um two seasons ago i think with maura and curtis curtis Pritchard was not he was the pudgiest of a blob. they've ever had um, a and yet blob. she yeah but she fell for him completely they all these women poor Amy you know they fell for so I think women always can be seduced by feelings of being you know treated nicely tr- you know charm it's it, whereas men it just it doesn't go the other way and so the fact that Liberty is totally devoted to Jake she doesn't want to look at anyone else but he, this issue of the identikit substitute seems much more of a problem for men. Let me say one thing that the women can't be seduced by, and that seems a middle-class accent, uh, or indeed yeah. a middle-class kind Absolutely. of demeanor. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, Zoe, you've pointed out before that like, Love Island at the moment is trying to say that this is the most middle-class series yet. And um, I think the men who are struggling in Love Island, you know, traditionally have been these kind of middle-class kind of freaks effectively who are dropped into this sociocultural environment that they're much less comfortable with. Whereas some of the educated middle-class girls, they can have a kind of mystique to them. They can have an authority to them. It's attractive. White working class, sorry, white middle-class men, you know, it doesn't travel well. Like Hugo is really suffering in this series as the teacher. And you might remember Alex, you know, the GP of a few seasons before who pushed instantly into friend zone because he wasn't gym buddy enough because he wasn't kind of macho enough in some ways and so there's a there's a real sense of you know hegemonic masculinity to use a term that you like zoe in, in gender studies and these kind of middle class men seem weak they're coded somehow as kind of weak um, yeah it's fascinating and i think you can inter integrate into that a kind of something to do with race because i think actually white men just okay craig and amber won 
Finn and Paige, okay, fine. But that's because Finn is a football. I mean, th- there's like, if they're professional athletes, which I think Craig was as well, um, then that kind of exonerates them. But nobody wants a kind of businessman white man. Um, even the white women <laughs> don't want that. I mean, that is completely true. The, the, being a middle-class white man is, is a kiss of death. Chugs did terribly. He came mm, across as really yes. disingenuous um, on this season. Yeah, Alex, I mean, Hugo, I wouldn't call middle-class, but uh, he's not doing well. But well, he has a nice. profession. The PE teacher has a profession. Yeah. Yes, he's not a welder, a scaffolder, or a model, or a, or a football player for a social media team, which is what Toby is. I've always thought race is another very interesting mm-hmm. thing on Love Island because, you know, there the middle class is wringing its hands about diversity and, and you know, racism. And actually, what you see on Love Island is, is a much more kind of dog-eat-dog play of race, which is that... If you're the women who are half, who, who have some kind of mixed, oh, race, mixed race heritage, do incredibly well. Women who are African heritage and have dark skin, dark, really dark skin, but they tend to do really badly. They don't get fancied. They aren't ranked as hot, no matter how beautiful they are. And that is, again, fascinating because they're on the show between the contestants. The girls are the girls. And you really see that race isn't a thing. Um, among these this class of people but it does it does interfere with the mechanics of lust which is just brutal to watch um and very interesting and and black men by by contrast do uh, very, very well. well yeah well there's a there's a kind of colorism i guess at play yeah. there that there is that there's a kind of spectrum i also think it's interesting you said at the beginning Zoe, that this is a very non-london show um and i think that's true and i think i do see a difference between the the women in particular who are a bit more worldly, who are a bit more um, educated, who are much more sort of plugged into maybe a kind of metropolitan um, professional environment. And I'm thinking here of people like Chloe or indeed, you know, Sharon, who is a civil servant, or indeed Rachel, who described her job as organising holidays for people of high net worth. You know, there's, there's a sort of shiny kind of career land woman who is starting to appear on Love Island who we've not normally seen. And you then pair these women with these guys who, as you say, are scaffolders. I mean, in the case of Brad, you know, who lives with his grandmother in a small village in Northumberland. Um, And it's very hard to get the two to talk together. Like, even though, you know, Brad is lovely on the eye, like it's very, very difficult to kind of to, to, to find a kind of common channel of communication. And so I think it's interesting with Love Island that it has tried to kind of go for diversity in terms of the whole UK as well. Like we've had, yeah. um, you know, Shannon, who was beautiful, didn't last very long, you know, coming from uh, coming from north of Scotland. Um, uh, obviously, we've got Jake coming from the southwest, like regional accents have become yep. a big thing. Yes. And it gives you a glimpse into what it, what is a night out in the town for a lot of these people who are not living in big urban centers. You know, because they want to project the idea that they're kind of party boys or that they're these kind of, you know, libertines. And actually, they're probably just going to a sort of slightly crap English provincial town and going to Spoons on a Saturday night. So, I mean, like you wonder what what is the kind of the party life? And you can see why Love Island for them is this completely impossible stage of glamour. Like the villa represents something that's completely out of you know, their normal night out in Torquay on a Saturday. So there's there's something about provincial England being on show here and people trying to kind of conceal that or trying to project beyond that that is also interesting. Uh, I could not agree more. 
and actually one of the questions they always ask each other is oh where are you from and they're like oh Essex and they're like oh me too no way and it's a sort of moment of you know they often say being from the same place means something but then you kind of yeah. I mean, I suppose then you kind of realize that it doesn't. Um, Tom, you've said some interesting things about conversation in relation to this show. What do you think Love Island says about conversation in modern Britain? <laughs> I think it reduces conversation to what they like to call as bants. Like, it yeah. seems to me that what the show shows you, and maybe this is unrepresentative, what the show shows you is that these are people who don't talk about their work you know, and maybe that's not necessarily a weakness, but because they they have very different professional backgrounds, as I've just suggested, you don't really get much reflection on what these people do with the majority of their days. Like, there's very little reflection on the kind of professional. There's very little reference in the political. All of the show is instead just showing you these kind of these overtures, these inquisitions. And it feels like the inquisitions are always the same. It's like, tell what's your type? This obsessive question over what's your type? which I know is usually coded as, could you ever fancy me? But it also feels like there's something more fundamental going on there. That like, you know, what, you know, what you are attracted to will define you somehow. And then these kind of potted versions of romantic histories. Um, you know, and it's interesting how for all of their kind of bravura, a lot of these people have been single for quite a long time. Mm. And it comes back to, again, an image of provincial England where maybe are they hooking up with people or are they actually you know, celibate for large periods of time. Mm -hmm. And it's this funny disconnect again between, you know, selling sex, but selling sex to people who might not be having that much sex a lot of the time, or, you know, partly with the pandemic and stuff as well, haven't been particularly kind of romantically or sort of sexually connected. So I feel like a lot of the conversation becomes an inventory um, of mm -hmm. what they like as again, a set of attributes and a little bit of potted romantic history. And beyond that, like, it's hard to know what they're really talking about within the bits of the show that we don't see. I don't think they know how to talk. I just don't think they, they've ever, that's just not a kind of mode that they have. I mean, talking between the sexes, because, it, because if you think about it, the kind of the substance of their conversation is, as you say, bants, but it's very much to do with all the, all the boys and the girls being mm. all the girls. And it's, the boys talk about the girls and the girls talk about the boys. So what else is there? You know, there isn't much else. But I think you also touched on that interesting point that, you know, how much sex are they actually getting? And, you know, we know that sex among Gen Z or whatever has, has kind of really gone down. Mm. And you kind of, I think it's kind of interesting. Like the women are very protective of not being seen as being slutty or promiscuous. So there's very, very traditional ideals at play. So I'm actually, you know, on one hand, they, they are almost obscene. I mean, they look like porn stars that that's what they want to project. Yeah. On the other hand, dare to suggest they've actually been sexually promiscuous and all hell breaks loose. So, you know, and I think maybe the men in that economy are thinking, you know, oh God, you know, we, we have to be careful about who we have sex with because the women that we deal with get really worked up about it. Or sex sex might carry some, some more significance, ironically, for these people than it would for like people I know um, who might just think, you know, maybe it's quite, it's actually, you know, traditionally been quite a middle-class pursuit having casual sex. Working class women well, it makes me haven't, haven't been able to kind of do that. It makes me think of those contradictions, Zoe, that I guess to turn back to another issue that you mentioned earlier with cosmetic surgery that these kind of that this mixed performance of both you know confidence look at me look at these kind of bronzed bodies I mean sort of crazily colored polychrome bodies kind of marching around and at the same time 
you know, do not accuse me of being fake. Do not accuse me of trying too hard. You know, that this, this emphasis on authenticity uh, that goes hand in hand with this incredibly almost drag-like performance of yeah. kind of sexual stereotypes mm. is, is very weird. I mean, for, for the sake of listeners and for those of us like, who haven't watched the episode as closely as, as we should have, um, do you want to say a little bit about the, yes, the fake, fake gate, gate scenario Zoe yes. tells us? Well, so I was completely taken aback. I was just, you know, having my nightly catch up of Love Island when there was a game and Hugh, the game was um, to say what you're the person you're paired up with likes or dislikes the most in, in a kind of opposite sex, per, like sort of person, partner. And um, Hugo was leading the game. And um, he, when it came to him to say what he doesn't like, he wrote on his little chalkboard, fake, um, fake, fake anything, fake boobs, fake personality, whatever. And there was an immediate sort of snarl that rippled among the women. Fake? What? He's throwing, you know, okay. Then he mentioned it again and they went, oh, he's throwing that word around, isn't he? Then I think he said it one more time and that was it. They kind of absolutely turned on him. They accused him of like, you know, being ignorant. How dare he? Fake. And it was so interesting. It was such a weird interpretation of feminism versus sexism because what they were saying was that it was incredibly quote ignorant and you know i suppose sexist of him to to be insensitive to why quote girls get the work done so in saying the word fake he it was almost like he was being lookist or or sexist it was incredibly weird and then they they he they were so um rude and angry with him that he basically spent the evening in tears and, you know, Sharon is saying, oh, you, well, now you seem fake as fuck because you're saying you're sorry now. You know, really horrible, mad, deranged stuff because he'd used this word fake. So, so it was a sort of. And they gave him a long lecture about their own body dysmorphia. It was exactly. instantly like, how dare you accuse us? We are victims. Yes. You've made, the you're done. the reason that we get all this work done was basically the message. And it was bizarre. And Faye was explaining, oh, you know, how do you think it felt? I came home from school crying every day because I was underdeveloped. And so when I turned 18, my parents got me a boob job. I mean, okay. But like, there must be a lot of girls who are underdeveloped who like when I was growing up, being skinny was good. I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a really strange thing. So there must, it just shows Tom how incredibly out of touch we are with the whole demographic who gets boob jobs. I don't know anyone with a boob job. Do you? Um, no, <laughs> I've sort of suddenly sort of flicked through my contact book and thought, no, I don't know anybody. Well, and also the lip fillers. <laughs> and they were all to. listening. They were all like boobs, lips, Botox. Like, and you think you're 25. Like, this is mad. Yeah. Um, or you're 21. They're so young to be having that. Oh, it's crazy. And also the lip thing just always looks terrible. The men, it's very interesting. The men, the women that the men go for on Love Island never have lip uh, they, they've Absolutely. never had the flip fillers so it's gone hey it's a it's a trend that's just not serving women well at all and I think there is a kind of addiction to it going on which is running on a different track from being attractive to men but it was fascinating that fake was, was a dirty word which I had never that shocked me it wasn't like he said anything racist or you know mm. it was just bizarre um, and yet, as you say, on the flip side there's this obsession with authenticity and trust and openness and transparency but at the same time, don't you dare question our desire to basically completely change our yeah. our bodies. And actually, Sharon, oh, God, when she was kissing Aaron at first, remember, he, his face was covered in powder. With the mics on. Yeah, <laughs> with the mics on, of course. Well, there's a lot of strange slurping noises on Love Island as well. As a non-regular viewer, I would say it's, you know, and there's been various fans I see who have complained about, please turn the microphones off. Like, we don't need to hear lips 
Well, especially Sharon's lips. I mean, excuse me for fakeism, but I mean, those (laughs) lips are kind of, they've been overdone and now they make a very strange slurping noise. I mean, that's interesting, actually, Tom. Why the hype? Why the hype? And by God, it is hyped. Everyone loves, I mean, Love Island, maybe not this year so much, but it has been a national obsession in the past. So I think, unfortunately, I'm going to take the dark view of this, which is they hate each other, as you say. I mean, your piece, Siri, that you wrote, a couple of years ago called Hate Island. It was kind of fun. Um, was it last year you wrote that piece? Yeah, but actually, yeah. like, I think it did put its finger on the, the nasty dynamics um, between the contestants. But I also think that something interesting is happening now with like the viewers who also have contempt for what they're watching. I mean, yeah. it's been it's been a kind of talking point on social media how boring this bunch are or how yeah. mediocre it is. And yet Love Island is this thing that generates thousands of memes on Twitter. You know, there was a good piece in The Guardian about how it's a show that you actually enjoy watching through social media. Like you don't watch the show itself. What you watch is the deconstruction of the show. And maybe this is the middle class ironic way to enjoy Love Island. But you watch it with the parallel text, as it were, kind of blowing these people up and destroying them. And I think... It is a show that is also tinged with tragedy. I mean, you can't get away from the fact that we've had these two suicides before, that Caroline Flack obviously killed herself, that there is this sort of very fragile sense of ego amongst the contestants that, you know, that they know for a brief time afterwards, they might make a lot of money. They might be on the front of now for a little bit or on the front of glamour. Um, But essentially they have these very kind of burn bright, but then probably kind of relatively short lived careers. And so there's something about watching these quite, you know, arrogant but at the same time very fragile personalities um, that mm. are all desperately fighting because I suppose that's the other thing that Love Island sort of brings out is is the nature of the contest here and yeah. the thing that I find interesting sociologically is what it tells you about why people settle you know if you even if you look at this you know this season where initially as we say there wasn't much desire there but because they know they have to couple in order to survive you see how people rewrite the narratives that they tell about each other in order to somehow kind of form connections with people that they weren't initially interested in. So I think it's actually an interesting show about compromise as well, or Mm. how people lie to themselves about the nature of desire. But why we're all still watching it is because of the nasty kind of mob frenzy that surrounds it. I think that's one of the reasons that it has the hype. What do you think, Zoe? I think you've pretty much summed it up. I mean, I think it's a sort of glad it's you, not me thing. I mean, uh, as you say, it's a sort of maybe a Greek cathartic exercise that you can watch other people hashing it out in the ring and you can just sit back and titter and think, um, <laughs> but also, also it is fascinating. Like, never has Love Island been compared to Aeschylus before, Zoe, I think, but you're yeah, going for it. It's very Euripidean. <laughs> but I think, you know, there is also just a genuine fascination with the the mechanics of early attraction and how and with the foundations on which relationships mm. are built. And that's why Channel 4's, you know, first dates is so incredibly popular. So Love Island offers all that and more in real time. Uh, I think it's just like their bodies are phenomenal. I think it's it's it spawns fashions and, and it, it also reflects fashions that most middle class people don't know about. Um, the relationship between Love Island and porn is probably quite interesting in terms of what fashions mm. are happening in porn and then what are happening in Love Island. So I, yeah, and I think, you know, just for me, the kind of pure like thrill of imagining how absolutely horrendous it would be for me to have to share a bed with a complete stranger who my entire career was staked upon generating a connection with in a room full of 12 or 15 other couples in a bed with snor- it, it being camp filmed 
<laughs> it's just it's so unbelievably dystopian to me that it's a kind of fun, it's a kind of weirdly relaxing watching it um the same way that i was sort of strangely relaxed when watching the hunger games because uh, it's just so awful and the handmaid's tale so i think there's something of the ha- handmaid's tale and the hunger games about love island um <laughs> so that's my kind of weird can twist I, can i pay you a strange compliment zoe i mean one thing that that comes out of this season is that um in the jake and liberty relationship you know she's always saying Ah, oh, he's the male version of me. Yeah. Uh, and he says, oh, she's the female version of me. You know, the narcissism that like what yeah. you want to find in Love Island is you in the opposite sex. Yeah. Zoe, I think it's a compliment I can pay you on your birthday that I don't think you would. I think you would struggle to find <laughs> the male Zoe in the villa. I don't think you're <laughs> I don't think you're generic enough that you would easily find a version of you in the opposite sex. Oh, you know, you don't think I'd find a bit of me. Um, well Tom I mean thank you for that birthday um, valediction but I would uh, I would I would send it right back to you I'm not sure there's the kind of bit of you on there either Um, although you know uh, no Thomasinas no Thomasinas although I mean if there was a way I could be on Love Island and have my own bedroom I would maybe I could they they could put me up in the hideaway every night Um, I I would consider it. I'm not sure I have the bikinis. I'm not sure I can do the kind of over side and under boob at once thing that they that they pull off these days. Um, The sheer shapes that the bikinis are cutting out of the breast is just unbelievably kind of like begging, like bending the laws of physics. But um, anyway, I'm not sure I could pull that off, but I I would try. Well, so join us next time for a slightly different uh, bit of a change of tack, a state of fear how the UK government weaponized fear during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's a book um, by Laura Dodsworth. And just as a disclaimer, neither Tom nor I agree that the UK government weaponized fear during the COVID-19 pandemic. And neither of us are raring to go for Freedom Day. And neither of us think masks should be thrown in the bin. However, we are going to engage with what is coming as a cult favorite book being read by millions and millions of people. 